0: Granger, for the ones who get it done. John Tompkins Monroe comes to New Orleans in 1837, before his 21st birthday, with just $3 in his pocket. And in that way, represents a lot of the inhabitants of that city coming to one of the most successful commercial ports in the United States at the time to... He got a living and, in fact, make a fortune, perhaps. Um, He has something big going for him, and that is that he is a descendant of the president, James Monroe. His father, Daniel Monroe, had uh, moved the family from Petersburg, Virginia, to Missouri and was a state representative there. So they, they had a little bit of a beginnings in politics, but not a lot of money. He became an ordinary laborer. He was a stevedore on the docks for a while. But that also gave him a connection to average working people. And so when 23 years after he arrived in New Orleans, he ran for mayor, it helped a lot. I mean, he gets his start in 1858 as a board of assistant alderman member and is placed on the Committee of Streets and Landings. This is very important in New Orleans, particularly in the time of the 1850s. The city is starting to develop its streetcar system, and Mayor Monroe is going to be a big part of that in addition to cutting right across that racial divide in the city. When you go to Canal Street today in New Orleans and you see that there's uh, what's called the neutral ground, which originally was the ground between the Cajuns and the Americans, had been separated by a group of trees, and now. And there were streetcars on either side, which was, there were a lot of complaints about. The mayor was critical in getting that streetcar system to the center ground. And there's still a train, track, and car there today. Like in a lot of rail systems across the United States at this time, there were horse-drawn cars originally on the tracks. And that was changed to dummies or steam-powered engines during his time as an alderman. Because of his success and likability, Monroe's elected to mayor in 1860. And it's not so much like that they're overwhelmingly in support of Mayor Monroe, but it's a vote where the citizens are mostly preoccupied with the national issue of peace and war. And of course, uh, Louisiana is going to be a state that votes for Breckenridge, so the Democratic candidate that's favoring uh, the rights of the South. That vote's going to be close, uh, 22,000 for Breckinridge to 20,000 for the John Bell Constitutional Union Party. So you see that in Louisiana, particularly in New Orleans, there's still a strong union element. We also should remember that the 1860 election was not an election about secession. Indeed, you know, John Breckinridge is going to be there at Abraham Lincoln's inauguration. He's not openly advocating secession. He's just standing with people who soon are going to do that. Uh, it's notable that Stephen Douglas gets 7,000 votes in Louisiana in that election, about 15% of the vote. Abraham Lincoln is not available to be voted for in 1860 on any ballot. During the mayor's time in office, it coincides with the secession of Louisiana. A convention of the free and independent Republic of Louisiana meets in New Orleans, January 29, 1861, in the Lyceum Room, the third floor of City Hall, to discuss the course to be followed by the state. They authorized the seizure of the United States Mint in New Orleans and to create a state army that will be headed up by Richard Taylor, the son of President Zachary Taylor, native of New Orleans. Once there's a Confederate States of America established, this Louisiana army will just join the Confederate army. Um, It's important to note that at least initially in New Orleans, there's support for secession. There might be grumbling among other groups, but Outwardly, their support. Uh, the carnival is held, the Mardi Gras in 1861, as it is in any year, and they, uh, you know, are now celebrating their status as a as an independent state. It's a great time for them. Uh, the sugar crop amounted to 458 thousand hogshead, twice the number of barrels of molasses. And initially, when war breaks out, New Orleans is looking at itself as a source of help for this new Confederacy and is helping areas and helping the army um, that need help. But there is danger on the horizon. David Farragut and his fleet is arriving. They are bottling up the port of New Orleans. Eventually, they will conclude that, and eventually, they will take the city in May 1862. Here's how one account goes. There are few men in public office in New Orleans who, when the guns of Farragut's fleets were trained upon the city, did not advise immediate and unconditional surrender, but the element of fear did not enter Mayor Monroe's mind. He was brave morally and physically. His dignified answer to the shameful order of General Butler, this is coming from a Confederate sympathizer, this account, is in itself evidence the true nobility of his nature and should alone be sufficient to cause his memory to be gratefully enshrined in the hearts of every New Orleans citizen. Mayor Monroe is then sent to prison by General Butler. He's not liberated till about a year before the war. As we discussed in the program, when he's elected mayor in 1866 in March... President Johnson, and receives an answer, Washington was not in possession of any information that would indicate the election had not been regular or that the party who had been elected might not qualify. He takes office. And so that puts James Monroe in office about the time of the mechanics attack, as we're talking about. He's not in there long. It's only a couple of months before the mechanics attack happens, but it's enough for him to establish some control over city authorities, over police forces, One thing we didn't get a chance to talk about in the podcast is the aftermath. After the Mechanics Institute, they called it a riot, many call it a massacre, it really was, with uh, more than 50 people dead, is that eventually General Sheridan, Phil Sheridan, is going to come back to New Orleans from Texas, where he had been stationed, and immediately is going to call for the removal of Mayor Monroe. And, And essentially, Mayor Monroe is deposed from the city. It it takes a couple of years for that to happen, but eventually he does. Um, Monroe dies in 1871. Now, I didn't think originally there would be enough uh, leftovers to talk about uh, for the Mechanics Institute cast, but I guess every time I think that I'm wrong, there's always something uh, left that we didn't get a chance to discuss. Why did we discuss the Mechanics Institute? It obviously is an episode of violence in politics that then led into political change and not political change that the perpetrators of that violence wanted. Although it could be argued that long term, they may have won the battle with violence happening all over the South during the Reconstruction period. That overall, without a federal government dedicated to protecting them, the freedmen, the African Americans who had come out of slavery, we're really not able to exercise their right to vote. and it would take a hundred years really for things to improve and While I don't think it's a one to one equatable to what happened on January sixth, it's just another example of a violent act that again you know um, we talked about the difference between politics and violence and you know and the lines between free speech. so I just saw it when I was talking about the um we got problems episode. I was talking a lot about a lot of things in the abstract and a lot of theories and a lot of hunches that I had. I thought the Mechanics Institute brought a real historical example to that task. In other words, you had questions there when the local authorities were saying that what we might consider a free speech act was an insurrection. That you know, shows you an example of how that power can be misused. You know, so if ever in the future everything Every protest is just labeled as a riot or insurrection or disturbance of order. We know something's wrong, and that's an example of it there. But on the other hand, it's also an example of great violence done to shut down the hopes of a people. And it did lead to the exact reverse goal of the people who intended it, at least for a short time, at least for a 10-year period. And there's no doubt in my mind that if Reconstruction could have continued for another 10 years with protections, the right to vote, with with federal forces enforcing the law where needed, life would be better in the United States today even. As a child, I'd spend my days with my great-grandmother, Brian Mitchell, who's a professor at the University of Arkansas, says. And family stories always led to important patriarchs or matriarchs in the family. And I'm a distant relative to Oscar James Dunn. We talked about Oscar Dunn, the first African-American lieutenant governor in the nation, lieutenant governor for the state of Louisiana in the 1870s. Dunn is Brian's great, great, great uncle. Brian talks about this back in 1976. He's in elementary school. And the teacher asks, is anyone was related to anyone in Louisiana history that was famous? And so Brian Mitchell says, yeah, I'm related to Oscar James Dunn. And the teacher says, well, who's that? And I said, well, he's the first black lieutenant governor, not just for Louisiana, but for the entire nation. And she said, there's never been a black lieutenant governor in Louisiana. And me, this is Brian Mitchell talking, eight-year-old Brian is like, yeah, there was. But you can't totally blame the teacher because there hasn't been a lot of discussion of Oscar Dunn, there hasn't been a lot of history, and indeed a monument that was planned to be built and actually funded was never made, so there's no statue for Oscar James Dunn. There's a very small uh, bust of him in the Capitol. He was born into slavery in New Orleans in 1826. His father, James Dunn, had been emancipated in 1819 later purchased the freedom of his wife, Maria, and their two children, Oscar and Jean. James Dunn became a a carpenter. He was particularly good at plastering. And Maria Dunn ran a boarding house for actors in New Orleans. In addition to his abilities as a plasterer, Dunn could also play the violin and taught private lessons. Working with newly enfranchised African-American citizens gave Oscar an opportunity to be an advocate for them to advocate for the education of all African-American children and equal protection under the laws. He became a member of the Louisiana Republican Party, became a part of its Central Committee, and he worked with the Universal Suffrage Association to register all eligible African-American men in Louisiana to vote. He also became an investigating agent of the Federal Freedmen's Bureau. In mass meetings in New Orleans, Dunn emerged as one of a handful of powerful radical voices demanding legal equality and suffrage in Louisiana's new government. And as we talked about in that episode, even though they had white allies, at least in supporting um, their right to be equal in the law, their right to, say, rent or buy property or sign contracts, when it came to suffrage, that was an issue where some parted ways. But by 1868, blacks were given the right to vote in Louisiana and Dunn became one of seven men who were African American in Louisiana Senate. He eventually becomes lieutenant governor under a um, another a white man named Henry Wormuth. He was in his 20s. Dunn's older. They're elected on the same ticket Um Warmoth sort of pretends that he wants equality between whites and blacks, but as he gets into office, it's pretty clear that he's not really going to be helpful. He does not sign a civil rights bill. It divides the Republican Party in Louisiana at the time that they really don't need to be divided when there are Redeemer factions who want to get the reins of government back. There's then Dunn, Camp, and A Warmouth camp in Louisiana, each has its own support, each are reaching out to Washington, each has friendly senators. But Oscar Dunn has somewhat of an advantage. In April 2, 1869, Dunn visited the White House and met with the president, Ulysses S. Grant. They spoke privately for a half hour. Both of them stout men, known for their stoic demeanors and straightforward manners of speech. As the 1872 gubernatorial election comes on, there's talks of possibly impeaching Henry Warmoth and putting Dunn in his place, or Dunn just running against him and beating him in that election. If Warmoth is impeached, Dunn will become the first African American United States governor uh, ever. But something else: um, there's rumors that Grant might even be considering Dunn. That this appears in the Galveston newspaper. That. Dunn was the man most likely to be nominated because Schuler Colfax, who was Grant's uh, vice president, had a number of scandals, and he would end up replacing him with Henry Wilson. As you can imagine having an uh, African-American vice president, not in 2021, but in 1873.
1: Some of us love history.
0: But something happens with Dunn, and nobody really knows the truth here. Um, he goes to a dinner, and after that dinner, he does not feel well. And a speculation that uh, he may be, have been dosed or poisoned. It was a sudden illness, vomiting, unconsciousness, official course of death, this is congestion in the lungs. It's a shock to the city. It's called natural causes, but a lot of people believe that's not what happened. They 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 think it's poison. In fact, arsenic poisoning, those symptoms, vomiting, shivering. Four out of seven doctors who examined Dunn refused to sign off on the official cause of death. But the family refuses an autopsy. We just don't know. There's been a lot of speculation about it. But Dunn dies at the age of 49, 1871, peak of his political career, city and country in shock. Over 50,000 people turn out for the funeral. Even his rival, Warmarth, is there as a pallbearer. And so um, I think those are two elements. uh, The story of Monroe and the story of Dunn are two things from that attack on the Mechanics Institute episode that I probably could have discussed more and uh, really kind of laid in as to um, what occurred there. There's there's other angles. Um, there's a lot more to descriptions of the attacks and things like that. Thanks for your support of the podcast, and thanks for listening.